The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the artist Grayson Perry has a new exhibition and documentary series about the United States. What can a British artist and broadcaster tell us about the fault lines in American culture? As well as Louisa Buck's interview with Grayson Perry in London, we have my conversation with Rob Storr, the author of a huge new book about the painter Philip Guston. And in this episode's Work of the Week, Margaret Carrigan talks to the artist Jacoby Satterwhite about Edouard Manet's masterpiece Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up to the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. And while you're there, you can also sign up for a range of other newsletters. Now, Grayson Perry this week opened an exhibition at the Victoria Mirror Gallery in London. It's linked to his three-part documentary series, Grayson Perry's Big American Road Trip, which is broadcast on Channel 4 in the UK this month. The artist travelled across the States on a bespoke motorbike that he designed, spending time among various communities. And these meetings inspired the works in ceramic and tapestry that form the show. Louisa Buck went to the gallery to meet him. Grayson, the show's called The Most Specialist Relationship about Britain's relationship with America or about your relationship with America, more to the point, because it's based on the trip that you made last year in in 2019, last summer, to America to make the series that's coming out on Channel 4 on the 23rd of September, Grayson Perry's Big American Road Trip. Why was it that you wanted to go to America and use it as your subject matter? Um, Well, I love America. I've probably travelled there more than anywhere and I love doing a road trip, particularly on a motorbike, which I've done before. Um, and I've always been interested in the culture war. You know, I know people now, with certain people sort of poo-poo this and sort of, oh, it doesn't exist. And I kind of go, well, it's something that seems to be bubbling along for quite a long time. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of territory I like to explore. Can you define culture war in your terms? I think it's when uh, people get very emotionally invested in relatively niche cultural phenomenon I think rather than the kind of grand scheme of politics they get bedded down in single issues Um, some of which of course are very huge like say race but a lot of the time it's over little things and and I think they can form a they they distract from the grand kind of sweep of politics often like I think you know in America the kind of elephant in the room is kind of uh, class Somebody, I was interviewing one person uh, uh, who got uh, edited out of the series, but he said, you know, people have got a list of 20 things. And if you only agree with 19 of them, you're a fascist. <laughs> Which kind of summed up the kind of uh, the, the way the culture war works. If you don't agree with people on this one specific thing then they will, then you are a bad person. It it kind of, it nibbles away at nuance. And of course, the internet is the perfect delivery system for a culture war. So you went to America and you made three programmes, roughly themed on one on race, one on the kind of social divides between America or the various issues within America in, in in the swing state, 
and then the East Coast elite. So you were, you were zeroing in on these particular issues. Yeah, I mean, when you're making a TV series, you have to kind of have some kind of logic, I suppose, to it. And race being the most historical and brutal and important conflict in America, an issue we felt, you know, we couldn't go to America and not do that. I mean, people might say, why is a white guy going to America? Maybe I was going to ask better. that now, of course, after George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter protests, because you know, it was a year ago that you went to America. And yeah. actually the race programme is a pretty positive one. I mean, you go to Atlanta, you talk about how how affluent a large proportion of the black population are, you go to high-end black colleges. And the theme, obviously, there are underlying issues and pressures there. But, you know, you a year ago in America, in the South, talking about race was quite a positive light that you gave. Yeah, no, that was the thing we wanted to do. You know, I think we, I think often when the subject of race comes up, it is a real downer. You know, it's always about violence and crime and racism. And we wanted to make a positive programme, you know, at the time. Obviously, a lot of stuff has gone down since then. But it doesn't, I don't think it necessarily negates what we talked about. And of course, we deal with all the shit in the programme. You know, many of the conversations are pretty sort of crunchy. Because I said to the people, you know, when I was interviewing them, I want, I'd quite like to have the conversation you have when there's no white people in the room, you know. But would you reconsider now, after Black Lives Matter protests and the death of George Floyd, thinking maybe me as a white guy going to America to talk to black people about race, maybe that's not quite what I would do in retrospect? If if I'm going to make a programme about the kind of cultural, social issues in America, it'd be pretty odd if I didn't make a programme about that. Can you imagine if I'd have gone and made a three-part programme about the culture war in America and not mentioned race? That would be pretty weird. Or involve somebody else. You know, I mean, I just, I'm just interested now in the way that the whole aspect has changed so much in the last year. Did you, did you re-edit the programme at all? Uh, we did put in a lot of archive footage from sort of what's happened this year. And we tweaked the voiceover. But in terms of the meat of the programme, it's not changed at all. So what did you discover? What were your kind of discoveries that you made about, you said you were going to be investigating the cultural fault lines in America and with a view to look into the UK, saying this could be happening here as well. So what, what, did you, what did you bring back? I think the headline is, is that we have, you know, each of us is an emotional core. You know, who we are, how, how we feel, how we've enculturated feeling from our family background, from our country, our education. And then we spend a lot of time looking for things to confirm that. And... So, and the internet is a perfect sort of system to deliver um, personalised bits of information that will confirm how you're feeling. And I think that is at the nub of it, is that people want to feel validated, you know, in how they feel, whether they're angry about something or whether they love something. And online social media culture delivers perfectly curated little menus to mean that you're never going to change your mind you're going to become entrenched in that and I think that that's what's happening and and we and we talk to kind of culture warriors on various sides of the of the divide in the program you know and and people they operate you know in a in a kind of sublime bubble of you know 
And you're talking here about the cultural elite, the Martha's Vineyard people. You seem to, you were quite hard on them. You seem to be quite quite critical of them. Well, they're very privileged. You know, they're very well educated. On the whole, they're quite wealthy. But I think that there's this thing that if you vote Democrat, you think that's enough somehow. And it's nothing to do with you. Whereas I think that they took their eye off the ball. You know, the complacency of the people on the left. They often focus, because they're very well educated, they tend to get, they think rationality, it's all about rationality. And that there is this sort of rational, scientific, fact-based way out of the mess. And the thing about the culture war, it's not really to do with facts, it's more about feelings. There was a lot of crying in the, um, in the, in the programme that you did in the state of Wisconsin with people particularly in the, 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 the rural, the, the, the farmers, the sense of people who, the, the bikers for Trump were yeah. welling up all over the place. There was a lot of feeling sloshing around that. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed Bikers for Trump and, and this woman, she burst into tears just talking about President Trump because, you know, at a very, you know, to, to us it seems bizarre that someone should be that moved by the idea of this kind of slightly, sort of, this, this kind of horrific buffoon. I think at a, at a kind of level of communication, he's the man spouting off in the bar in the language of the, his base. And it, what he says is irrelevant. It's how he says it. And this is what the left doesn't understand. I don't think they, they don't intuit it very well. They don't understand how to talk to the electorate. They know what they want to say. And it all sounds great. But how they say it, the kind of, you know, the look of the person, the, 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 the syntax of the person, you know, it, it seems bonkers to us. But his incoherence is one of his kind of electoral benefit. You know, it, it does him good. So you go there, you've gathered all this information, you've made these three programmes, but you're also making art. You are predominantly an artist rather than a TV presenter. Or do you see yourself now in a kind of double act way? Um, when people ask me what I do, I say now, I say I'm an artist and a broadcaster because I enjoy doing both of them. And I quite like having those two different things because... Being an artist on the whole is a solitary occupation and it's nice to do something, though it seems ironic in this present times. I like to do something that's communal uh, and get out and meet people. Uh, and I'm good at it, so I'll do it. Um, but being an artist, yeah, I mean, I, or, or even while I was in the States, I was starting to sort of doodle, sketch things down about what, what art I wanted to make in response to my experiences there. And that's what this exhibition is. I mean, you've got these, this enormous tapestry, very large, very expensive abstract painting, which is this vast map of Manhattan laid on its side and looking extremely phallic with, a, with an abstract expressionist painting overlaid in it, all wrought in tapestry. Um, I mean, you've got these various gorgeous looking pots and then another, the, the, the American Journey, the map. And that was the only piece that we actually see you making on the television series is, is the actual American Journey map. Could you talk a bit about how these works emanated from your trip around America? Well, I, I did a lot of reading. I did more reading for this series. You know, normally we research the, the theme, whatever I'm working on. But I, I did a lot of reading in, in the lead up to this series. So I had this kind of bank of sort of opinion and, and knowledge that I was sort of working on that, and I wanted to use it. And then I've always wanted to have a, a sort of big show in America. So we thought we would present a bunch of work at Freeze New York. But then 
that got cancelled. And so I had this group of works uh, all about America. And so this show happened and, it, you know, and it's coinciding with the broadcast of the TV series. So it's worked out quite well. And you do tease out themes. I mean, you've got the, the, the warhead pot with, with, the, with the Trump figure coming out of the sea and these sort of missile shapes, which actually are the silhouettes of the slave, the Brooks slave ship. So you've got this kind of Trump race pot. You've got the liberal elite pot with slogans. I mean, they do have a political bent to them, as, as do all your works, albeit from an oblique angle. Yeah, I mean, I think my sort of modus operandi, you know, principally is I want to make artworks that I like the look of. You know, I want to make something that is covetable, you know, the tapestry, it might be quite a sort of stinging rebuke of a certain section of the metropolitan elite. But, you know, in the end, it's like, oh, that's a nice bit of fabric to put on the wall. And the same with the pots, you know, because I think that it, that has, a, that, that, you know, that operates in an interesting way for me in that, A, it makes it more covetable and therefore people will want to buy it and put it up in their houses or whatever. And B, it sort of suggests that for a lot of creative people, the political content is decorative. Mm. And that is, for me, that's quite an edgy statement. You know, that idea, like the part I made called Pale Virtue is about that idea, you know, very directly that, you know, it's part now, you know, you've got so many artists now that call themselves activist artists. It's a style, like abstraction was a style, to be activist is now a style of art you do. And it's that edginess that is the kind of aesthetic that, you know, and you may well feel strongly about the issues that you're making the art about. But if you, if you were to define a lot of the work that's being made at this point in the 21st century, it's activism. But aren't you an activist to a certain extent? You're going on television, you're talking about at the end of your programmes, you're saying, we need to have more empathy, you're saying, in the, in the, in the yeah. culture. With, with the race one, you're saying we need to have more conversations. I mean, you're being very yeah. genial about it, but you're still making political points and yeah. I think wanting to change things. Yeah, but I'm, yeah, of course I am. You know, I have opinions about these things. Uh, you know, I, I might call my... If, if you were to ask me where I was politically these days, I think, well, what's the most mischievous thing I can be? Probably a radical centrist. You know, it's 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 that idea, you know, because we live in such polarised, simplistic terms sometimes. It's... Uh, but yeah, I am. I suppose I am an activist. I, 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 I was going to call one of my stage shows middle-brow activist. <laughs> Because, you know, you've said, I think, in the press in the past, you said, you know, don't, don't do useless art that no one wants to see. Don't be an activist. Go join Extinction Rebellion. Go, go sign up to an activist group. But in a way, you know, art can do things that oh, yeah, activism but can't make do. make it nice, you know. <laughs> don't make it some sort of clod-hopping installation that no one, you know, that's going to end up in a storeroom at the back room of Tate forever. So in a way, beauty is your weapon. I mean, the most gorgeous pot that you make in, in the show is the one that has the American flag made up of weapons, missiles, logos. You know, it's it's of all the kind of horrible underbelly of America that yeah. makes up the Stars and Stripes, but it's the most gorgeous pot. I set out to make, you know, using the template of Oriental ceramics, I set out to make an exquisite object, yeah. And so that one is called uh, Persian... Korean and Japanese influences and 
I wanted to do a pot that, you know, was highly crafted and very, very kind of at first glance, you think, oh, that's a really lovely thing. And then, you know, the the kind of symbolism of it is very, it's relatively dark. And But, but that's how I op- I've operated from day one, you know, but it's just now I had the skills and maybe a bit more subtlety to do it better. You know, but that, yeah, I'm very pleased with that work. But are you an optimist, really? Because I think at the end of all those programmes, you end on quite a stirring note. And also in this exhibition, you have your killer weapon of beauty, but you also have that pot, The American Journey, which is a kind of positive pot. Of yeah, totally. I mean, if I think of the cultural influences on me, particularly with music, for instance, you know, I love country music and... Uh, uh, all the, the literature that I read, the films, the TV, you know, and a lot of the art that I love and it influences me is American. One of the things we talk about in that first episode of a TV series is demographic shift, you know, about the fact that within a few decades now, America will be majority non-white and Trump might be the last hurrah of a certain sort of politician, you know, he... He's the kind of death throes of right-wing, nationalist, white supremacy or whatever. So I do feel, you know, demographic shifts will, will do a job, hopefully, and make America truly the melting pot that it is. So you see this show, in a way, as a celebration as much as a critique of America. I love America. But I do, you know, there's a plate on my rack of plates that's called I Love USA, I Hate USA. Because very early on, I remember me and my wife, we did a big motorcycle tour in 91 across the States for two and a half months. And I just sort of remember thinking then, you know, we were sitting in some cafe and I said, oh, I really do with a beer. And And the woman said oh, I'm afraid this is a dry county or something. And I went, oh, America, you're either teetotal or a drunk. There's nothing in between. (laughs) And it kind of summed up my feelings about the USA as a land of extremes, you know, extreme crassness, but extreme beauty as well. Thank you very much, Grayson. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Grayson Perry, The Most Specialist Relationship, is at Victoria Miro in Wharf Road, London, until the 31st of October. And Grayson Perry's big American road trip begins on Channel 4 in the UK on the 23rd of September. I talked to Rob Storr about Philip Guston in a minute, but first, here are a few of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. Three months after accusing the institution of racism, an activist coalition of current and former employees of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York expanded its critique of the museum this week and demanded that its director, chief operating officer and chief curator resign, as Nancy Kenny reports. In a statement addressed to the museum's board of trustees and staff, the group, called A Better Guggenheim, said that Richard Armstrong, Elizabeth Duggle and Nancy Spector should be removed if they do not step down. The document calls for the board to take urgent action by pursuing the three resignations. A spokesman for the museum says it has no comment on the group's statement. Meanwhile, Margaret Carrigan reports that employees of notable US and UK galleries are anonymously airing experiences of racism, harassment and discrimination through a submissions-based Instagram account called Cancel Art Galleries. The page has published dozens of accounts of alleged abuses of power in the art trade since it was started in July, amid similar calls by accounts like A Better Guggenheim. 
And finally, after doggedly continuing with plans while the majority of other art fairs have been cancelled this year, the organisers of the FIAC Fair in Paris have finally conceded that the 47th edition of the Modern and Contemporary Art Fair will not go ahead in the French capital's Grand Palais next month. Annie Shaw reports that the announcement comes as coronavirus cases rise in France and new travel restrictions are imposed across Europe, including from Belgium to Paris. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This September, Christie's Asian Art Week returns to New York with its series of 11 live and online sales representing the vast continent. Explore 5,000 years of art spanning China, India, Japan, Korea and more, with highlights including Gandarin sculpture from a private collection and Qing Dynasty porcelain from the prestigious Alsdorf collection. From rare Huanghuali furniture to modern paintings by Vasudio Eskaitonde and Jahangir Sabavala, treasures from every category of Asian art wait to be discovered. Browse the sales online, explore Christie's virtual galleries and view the art in person. Learn more at christies.com slash asianartweek. Now, a reminder that you can catch up with Series 1 of the Art Newspaper's other podcast, A Brush With, featuring interviews with the artists Michael Armitage, Jenny Saville, Chantal Joffe and Rashid Johnson on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and now on Amazon or wherever you're listening now. We'll hear from Jacoby Satterwhite on Manet soon, but first, Philip Guston. This summer, a major survey exhibition of Guston's work was due to open at the National Gallery of Art in Washington before touring to take Modern in London, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. The NGA show was, alas, postponed due to Covid-19 and the show will now open at Tate Modern in February. A number of books were scheduled to coincide with the show, however, most notably the vast tome that is Robert Storr's Philip Guston, A Life Spent Painting. I spoke to Rob about the book. Rob, I was taken by something that you say in your introduction, which is that Guston's work is still becoming. And I'd like you to unpack that a bit. I know what you mean, but I'd like you to say what what, what you meant. Well, I can't remember having said it, but I think I know what I meant. Uh, Guston is an artist with a huge scope and ambition. And it is the situation that events have caught up with him. But I think with a regard, without current problems, they would have anyway, because of the scope of what he was doing. And so that every time big changes happen in the world, we found new correlations with what he did. In some ways, he anticipated what was happening. In other ways, the historical examples that he looked back on encompass what is happening now. So I think that's the way in which you, we will see for a considerable time going forward, situations in which he becomes newly relevant. And each time he does, there's new layers of meaning attached. And and in terms of the 21st century, which ways do you feel that Guston is relevant today? Well, I think he did not deal with the racial thing specifically, and one could fault him for that, although precious few people were at that point, certainly even fewer white artists were doing that. But he certainly dealt with the other side of the coin, which is uh, bigotry and hatred. And he in the 30s did make representations of African-Americans. He did deal with lynching and so on. So it's not that it was off his chart. And as I think I say in the book, one of the reasons he turned back to the Klan was the Birmingham bombing in, in the 1960s. But he didn't represent it. So I would think, okay, fine, there is room there where somebody else can step in and pick up the thread. And that is, in fact, the way traditions are built. People not so much contradict the predecessor as 
add on in the spirit of or with slight disagreement with the president. And I think his his work is like that now. I think there are a lot of people who are thinking along those lines now. And I think we will see new images that uh, take Gustin into account and push the push the critique forward. That's certainly my experience. I, I talk to a lot of painters and I don't hear any painter's name more than I hear Gustin's. And it seems to me this has been the same the whole time I've been talking to artists. He seems perennially interesting to artists, right? Well, I think his interest to artists is number one. He was completely fluent and 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 at home in his medium. And we've been through a period where painting was much damned and was thought to have been utterly superseded by other means. I'm not of the school that believes anything ever supersedes anything else. I think it just all becomes a, a much richer soup. But in any case, uh, we've been through a period in the 80s when this was when Gustin was just peaking in terms of his work. He died just at the beginning of the 80s, but where the discourse had moved on to other things. Now I think people are going back and realizing he sustained and his ideas have sustained the medium. Um, there were others as well. He wasn't alone. Richard did it and Elizabeth Murray did it. Numbers of artists showed what could be done with painting after painting had died. But I think Gustin is a particularly encouraging figure for many artists because he combines painting and drawing in a spontaneous way. He combines mixed emotions with fervent emotions. One of the great things I think about your book is it's massive. And I love the fact that there are massive images, <laughs> you know, because apart from anything else, in all the phases of Guston's work, there is so much incident in these works. And whether that's in the very early works where, the, you know, where he's profoundly influenced by the Mexican muralists or whether it's in the abstract works or the later works, it seems to me that there is so much energy and commitment to... Uh, to making each canvas so vital. <laughs> and, and, and that's one thing that really comes through when you see the images reproduced large, right? Well, I think that goes, the credit for that goes to the publisher and also for the estate. But there has never been a big Gustin book before, a coffee table book, if you want to call it that. I don't, but, you know, whatever. A, a large format one where the pictures can be felt as well as seen. And I think that's really important. Um, it could have happened before. But it didn't. So now we finally have this book. It happened for de Kooning. It happened for virtually every other member of his generation. But it didn't happen before. So now we have it. And I think it makes a real difference because Gustin is a physical painter. And if you see a large physical thing in a small, flat physical thing, it just doesn't have the same effect. Let's talk a bit about what you're able to do in with this number of pages and, you know, in, in given this space to do this in-depth and investigation of his work, the thing that struck me most reading the book is how much you were able to talk about the early work, because it's the, I guess it's the most, it's the littlest known part of his career. Can you talk us through those early years and the influence of the Mexican muralist, for instance? Okay, well, the, the Mexican muralist influenced pretty much every major painter in America in the 1930s to a greater or lesser extent. Another figure in that background would also be Fernando Leger, who was a muralist. But the idea of muralism was attached principally to the Mexicans, and the fact that Orozco and Siqueiros and Rivera all came to this country and that artists could meet them had an immense effect, because it also showed that ambitious art was possible in the Americas, which many American artists did not know. Um, what they saw was European art in small formats. They saw their own regional painting, and that was it. So Gustin was encouraged to think big by the Mexicans. 
as were many of his peers, and his particular peer, uh, uh, Jackson Pollock, who was his high school classmate, learned from the Mexicans, but never did a mural, ever. He did one painting called Mural for Peggy Guggenheim, but it was for her apartment, and it could only be as big as her ceilings, whereas Gustin painted big, big paintings and thought in those pictorial terms. And they, you, in the book, there's, there's reproductions of those works that were actually destroyed by Klansmen, right? So tell us about that story. Well, he, he painted a, a portable mural in Los Angeles in the 1930s and uh, some kind of goon squad mixing, uh, you know, right wingers of other stripes and the clans came and destroyed the paintings. They were on panels and they were destroyed. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we have to think about uh, Donald Trump is he's the continuation of a long strain of nativist and racist violence in this country. A very long strain. He's not unheard of. So we need to realize, one, how reactionary he is. He would like to take things back not only to the 1930s, but to the 1830s and beyond. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is that artistically speaking, American art had not come of age in the 1930s when Justin began, nor when Pollock began, nor when any of the artists of the abstract expressionist group began. And so it was a huge uh, leap forward for them. There's a tendency in Europe and in Britain particularly to look at that period as the point at which America lost its senses of proportion and began to sort of be belligerently, uh, you know, pushing itself onto other people. But the truth of the matter, it was a country that had never felt pride in its own artistic traditions and finally had a reason to. And also they had this precedent of the Mexicans, which was not from the United States, but from another country. It was the United States of Mexico, but not the United States of America, uh, to really challenge the old masters where the old masters had practiced their trade, which was on the walls. So all of this was a very positive development. Uh, and in a way, it is a shame that it did not continue. I mean, that we do not have a mural tradition today. That's interesting, isn't it? Was it? I mean, one of the things that's, that it's clear from looking at those images of the murals that he made, the works he made at that time, is incredible facility. He was, you know, he was in, incredibly gifted, and clearly from a very young age. I mean, the works that that incredible mother and child work he made when he was just seventeen, I think, shows incredible accomplishment. So. Talk us through that a bit, you know, to what extent was he a prodigy and to what extent, in a way, was he working against his prodigious nature all the way through his life? I think he was he was he was definitely gifted. But remember, where he practiced his craft first was in copying comic strips. He sat in the little closet in his family house, his apartment, whatever it was, you know, hiding out with comic books and then meticulously copying. But he was copying Crazy Cat. And George Harriman was one of the great draftsmen of the 20th century. So if you're going to copy anybody, it's just as well that you copy him as that you copy Picasso, who actually also was a Harriman fan. So this is, this is the point where the strands of his seemingly divergent nature actually knit together for the first time. He then had uh, Lorsa Feidelson, who was a, a Los Angeles painter who instructed him. And Feidelson was a very conservative magic realist. But his conservatism actually was cosmopolitan, not narrowly American. And he taught Gustin how to do that very fine line and how to build hatching and so on and so forth. But any artistic coming into, artist coming into their own does so in phases and stages and overlaps and so on. That's where the blend happens. And the blend is unique when it happens in a way that had not happened before. So where does the sort of join happen between those early experiments and, and his adoption of abstract language? What's the significant moment in that? Well, the abstract language is the rupture point. That's the point at which he let go, lets go of all of his 
the draftsmanship and it's obviously morphs, but you know, he lets go of all of his traditional craft and lets things happen and releases his control of the line, lets the line meander. You know, there's a famous thing that uh, Paul Clay said that a, a line is a, is a point going for a walk. Well, he let that happen. And so that moment, which is late 1940s, early 1950s, is the really biggest break in his life. It's not later on when he picks up the clan images again. It's in the beginning of his abstract career, which is why I tried to give his abstract career more attention than is often given in books about Gustin because people talk about the paintings that were sort of prime abstract expressionist moment paintings and then let the rest of them float. And I think they do float in a most wondrous way, but I don't think they should be allowed to float art historically. Right. Yeah. So tell us about that because, it, yes, you're right. There's, you know, and, and actually in Hilton Kramer's famous aggressive review um, about the about the figurative paintings much later, he talks about how esteemed um, Guston is among the abstract painters, right? So, so you know, there was there, there was a lot of esteem even then amongst painters and, and and others about for the elegance of of Guston's abstractions. But actually, his his abstractions are little understood in some ways. There's, there's a very particular body of work that 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 isn't really very well known, right? Okay, well, there there are the late uh, abstractions, which are uh, some of them very heavy and oppressive in atmosphere. Um, they're the early ones which are sort of skittly and Mondrian influenced. But the, 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 the term elegance applied to, to Gustin was often a way of actually kind of brushing him off. Uh, it would be a way of saying, okay, he's elegant, whereas de Kooning or Klein or whatever it is are, are vigorous and macho. All of these terms are so coded. They were so much about the internal, intramural squabbles and rivalries of artists. And Kramer was just an idiot. I mean, I knew him. Uh, and he was an idiot. He was, he was an idiot not because he didn't have a brain, but because he was so much prejudiced by his uh, political views and by certain aesthetic views that he just couldn't see plainly or talk plainly about the things that were right in front of him. So, you know, I'm not going to worry about him. He's dead. But the point is that his, what he voiced at that moment was a, a generational sense of betrayal that I think many people felt when Gustin moved from his so-called elegance uh, to his later work. Um, I think he's the same painter throughout. And I think what you see in those late abstractions is the reemergence not just of imagery per se, but also of a kind of bluntness and a, a willingness to go straight to the point of the image, which in the early ones is the thing that's in question. There are images from the early 50s which don't seem to come together, which can't gather. And I don't think that's, uh, you know, an accident. They couldn't. Later on, they could, and they couldn't. At that point, they become black holes, literally. They seem to sink into themselves and acquire mass. How neat is it that we have this phrase from Guston about how he says he's, you know, this that famous phrase, what kind of man am I sitting at home, reading magazines, going into a frustrated fury about everything and then going into my studio to adjust a red to a blue? Is it is it as simple as that often quoted quote or was the development towards figuration from abstraction much more gradual, much more complicated, much more bumpy, as I guess? It was much more bumpy, but the turning points are like that. Suddenly something that's been happening for a long time crystallizes. May I say that I, as a painter who will go upstairs after this interview and try to adjust a red to a blue, feel much the same way under present circumstances. And the fact of the matter is that some artists who were doing that in the 50s continued to adjust a red to a blue, and only Gustin broke out. But if you want to look at Gustin's own evolution, during the 50s, he was making cartoons of his friends, which 
are virtually unknown and not all of which still exist. He was making uh, drawings and letters all the time to people. This was a constant dimension of his work and it was the whimsy, it was the perversity of imagination that came out in these so-called ancillary activities even as he was making pure abstractions. So what happened is in the, the moment where he felt his frustration was that he decided, okay, I will just go all the way down that track which I've been, you know, sort of halfway on for a while now. I'm just going to go straight on it. I'm, I'm taken with this idea also that the continuum of his career, not just these ruptures, that his facility with paint, that that extraordinary quality that the paint has, which is consistent in some ways between those abstract, those late abstractions, particularly in the figurations, um, in a way that if you just deal purely with image you don't get right so you have to you have to take image and the and the physical reality of these things together because otherwise you you miss the 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 great depth of guston i guess right that's correctly that's correct and also if you want to know about his difficulty with his own facility it's the same thing that happened with de kooning and de kooning and he talked together on the phone from time to time de kooning devised all these different techniques for screwing up pictures that he could have done in his sleep right <laughs> And he did. He, he would take a, a, a wet a transfer of one of a part of a painting. He would flip it over and apply it to the surface that was beautiful of the same painting, and then try and deal with the with the contamination of one side to the other. I mean, artists who have great facility have a curse as well as a gift, and that is something that all of them who are serious have to learn how to deal with. One of Motherwell's problems was that he never felt the need. Uh, one of the, some other people's is that they simply exploit it for the production of uh, things that will sell. Gustin and de Kooning were serious artists, and they would not accept a formula even if they could do it over and over again beautifully. And so Gustin, at the apogee of his success in one ways, just chucked it all and started over. And he did it three times in his life. Right, exactly. And but let's talk about that that great moment in 1970. You talked about this kind of generational rupture in that that him showing these figurative paintings created. Can you give us a sense of that? You know what happened at that moment. Well, you have to remember that the art world in New York at that time was very very small, and it met in the same bars and in the same restaurants and at openings from time to time, and there were occasional studio visits. But if you if you were on the outs with somebody, it was intimate, not general. And there was almost no market for anybody. So it wasn't about career. It was about reputation, which is different. And if you were reputed to be one thing and suddenly start, show up doing the other thing or another thing, uh, you could be shunned. You could be ostracized by your former comrades because what formed those groups was the opposition that you all felt in the 30s and 40s. So you were a, you were a, an apostate or uh, you know, a Judas to the cause in the eyes of some people, right? And this was also the moment when pop art was really taking command. Pop art had been born in Britain in the late 50s. It mushroomed in the early 60s in this country. So by the time he showed these works, it was as if he was joining the other team. Now, there were several other teams. There was minimalism and so on and so forth. But the point is that people looked at it in those kind of Manichaean terms and thought he'd gone commercial. He thought he'd jump chipped, thought he'd gone for the easy, easy style. And... One, they didn't know that he'd been making cartoons all his life. Two, they didn't understand that it wasn't easy even if you did do something like that. Um, Peter Saul is an example of that. Um, and so on down the line. It, it was a very complex situation, but Kramer wasn't smart enough 
to realize that. And he wasn't honest enough to say it if he did realize it. Other people who were in the inner circles were feeling that one of theirs had left left the phalanx, had left the barricades, and they were really upset and they didn't understand it. And they didn't see why he did it. And they just felt betrayed. Let's talk about the imagery, because it's on the one hand, there are these repeated images that appear throughout that last decade. But actually, it's a much richer lexicon of images than many um, commentators would estimate. You know, can you tell us something about how broad his language of forms was in that period? Well, I think there are several parts of that. Number one, he'd drawn all his life. And the daily practice of drawing is something that is visible in artists. Those who draw rarely uh, can do wonderful things on occasion, but they can't you know, use it as a way to... De Kooning talked about uh, his art as being kind of like a, a, um, a yogurt. You know, there's a little, you have a little element and you drop it in a new bit of milk and then you have a new yogurt. Uh, he and Gustin had the most potent fermentation devices because they practiced their art for so long and they had accumulated in the process not just skill in the hands but also associative abilities with the mind. When they saw a particular curve it would remind them of something either they had made or somebody else had made. And so if they were going into the curve they might come out of it differently because this reminiscence had taken place. And Gustin and, and de Kooning and a lot of them were not embarrassed to show their references to art history. They weren't seeking them. It's just that it was in them, right? And so I think a lot of what happened with Gustin's uh, developed vocabulary was that he, he, he kind of took full ownership of the scope of his knowledge, and he just let things happen. And he would recognize them, and he would think about them, and he would decide whether to restart the engine there or somewhere else. But he was always grateful for suggestion, illusion, uh, and inference. And of course, there's this wonderful thing where you have him and Philip Roth talking about crapola. What what did he mean by crapola? Well, what he means is the the ordinary junky life of everyday America. Uh, you know, crap is shit, basically. But he was he was savoring the fact that so much of what we live surrounded by is, in fact, shit. Uh, and, you know, you, you have to love it because it's human, but you don't have to love it specifically because it actually stinks and is ugly. So he's into that. And Philip Roth was, 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 was a man who appreciated these things, too. So the idea that you would have a friend with whom you could have this dialogue about all the things that high culture mavens were opposed to, I mean, Hilton Kramer was nothing if not a maven of high culture. And many of the literary reviewers of this time uh, took uh, Roth to task on the same grounds. Art should be elevated. Everything else should be just commercial. Well, art has never been that elevated. I mean, what, Rabelais, please. Um, <laughs> Augustine is a Rabelaisian artist, right? And, 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 and we had forgotten that such artists exist. But he's Rabelaisian not just in the sense that he's risque or obscure, uh, obscene or whatever he's grotesque he savors grotesquery as a natural outgrowth of the divided nature of humans and you talked about trump and obviously some of the great works that guston made in that last decade refer to president nixon there's a painting which i've seen in the flesh recently called san clemente which is an extraordinary image of nixon tell me about that i mean was it were they were those sort of amused detached caricatures or was was some of that frustrated fury in those pictures as well 
Absolutely, the frustrated fury was there, but there's an element too, which is the identification. Um, the the San Clemente painting is the only painting that he made in the same idiom as his cartoons, and it's the only painting of Nixon or any of the the political villains of that time that he ever made either. But you know. You have to remember that Gustin was not standing on the outside pointing fingers. He was saying, this is what we have become. And it so happens, and he says it at one point in his uh, journals or lectures, that he came from the same part of Southern California that Nixon came from. And he was roughly of an age with Nixon. So he identified with him, not in the sense of, you know, accepting what he thought or did, but rather in the sense of realizing that he too was the product of a small reality in the corner of America, uh, looking at the wider world and struggling with all the sense of alienation that goes with that. So he didn't just despise Nixon, he knew him. Right, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things I think draws me back to Guston so much is that on the one hand, there is much amusement that you can find in his incredible um, creativity with form, in the way that in his structure, in his the compositional flair in that very caricature language but also there is a distinct pathos and it's and it, it seems to me that that's a really difficult thing for a painter to get right it could fall flat so easily can you say something about what uh, you know to what extent was he conscious of of trying to achieve a balance between this sort of absurd and genuine sadness or or despair even well, there are two things. I think he, li- he he lived on the knife edge of that balance. And then the question was, by what means do I actually depict or express it? Because the artistic problem is the one of transforming what you truly experience into something that others will also be able to experience. So I don't think there's any question but that he actually felt all of those things genuinely. He wasn't trying to talk about something that was outside him. He was trying to talk about something that he was right in the midst of himself. But I think also that he chose a comic means to express a tragic reality is an indication of how smart he was and also how ambitious he was because people throughout the 1950s had been expressing tragedy as tragedy, as something sad, as something fraught with anxiety, etc. And that was the whole existentialist uh, legacy to painting in that period. And he realized that that was spent. You could no longer use that rhetoric effectively. It would not get under people's skins or in their souls or in their brains because he was also a very learned painter and he thought about things. So he did then go to his artistic or particularly his literary paradigms, Kafka, Babel and others who expressed tragic circumstances in burlesque fashion. There's sort of doubt in the work. Again, I think that that's something that a lot, that appeals to a lot of painters, and it's it's writ large in images of artists as well. So the idea of a painter as depicted by a painter is very prevalent in those late works, isn't it? If you see a painter in Guston, is that always him? I think it all is always the painter. <laughs> Of which he is one. <laughs> so, but I think there's also something to, to, to acknowledge. Gustin talked a great deal. And he also talked sometimes too much. And people got tired of him talking about doubt and all of that. And there was a pushback from his peers who were going through many of the same things, who hadn't, in fact, solved the problem as effectively or even faced it as squarely as he did. But he could go on a bit. So I think you have to separate the man from the paintings. The paintings are never corny. They're never uh, ranting or rhetorical or whatever it is. Occasionally, his conversation is 
tedious, frankly. He tries too hard to establish himself in this existential mode, and no one would doubt it, but he doesn't need to tell us quite so often and in quite the same words. So I am a big fan of Augustine's, but nobody's perfect. And if he has feet of clay, those are his feet of clay. One of the things that you do at the end of the book is is to try and position him in the critical world now and and how he's been interpreted over the you know over recent times what would you say you learn from that from going through that process do you uh, you know are there lots of preconceptions still at work in terms of interpreting guston or or, or is there an acknowledgement of the complexity of his oath now i think there's increasing in understanding the complexity of his oath but i think also the critical language in our country and in your country have not evolved that much over this period of time. And even though the painting is there to, uh, you know, demonstrate that we need better language, we don't have it, right? So the cliches about painting being just a solipsistic activity, the cliches about American art being just uh, jingoistic and all of that persist. And people don't look because they can't think. They don't have language for what they see, and they don't see because they don't have language. So I think that's the biggest problem. You know, Gustin was, a, as I said, a very large uh, comprehensive artist, but the the language of art this discourse is narrow and it is parochial in many cases, and it is also uh, party pre. It's it's people with axes to grind and agendas to follow. I wish people would just be expansive and let themselves see and hear and think a lot of things before they open their mouth or put pen to paper or finger to keyboard. It strikes me. That I mean, in in that bit, I know there's a bit, for instance, where you talk about um, the way that Guston got somehow slotted in with that neo-expressionist moment. Yes, and how there was no possibility that he could have been aware of the work of Kiefer and 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 Basilitz at that time. You can't link them because they're just so distinct. Well, you can, but but in the other direction. Basilitz almost certainly knew Gustin, and there are Basilitzes of the 90s that have very direct debts to the abstract paintings about which I don't talk much, but I could have. There are quite a lot of Basilitz paintings that show Gustin's influence directly. So I suppose the, the, the question is, how do we situate Gustin now in art historical terms? You know, do we just see him for as, as a kind of maverick, genuinely original painter who who cannot be categorized or is it useful to position him in terms of the new york school and later developments in figuration especially when painting was in was in crisis as it were well i think it's useful in a couple of directions to understand him better we need to put him in history but to change our historical models we need to put him in history too because he makes those models obviously wanting. This is true of Richter. This is true of Louise Bourgeois. Of a lot of people I've written about, I've written about them in part because I found the categories into which they've been slotted inadequate and the paradigms that created those categories inadequate as well. I have to say, art historians are the most conservative people, whether they call themselves Marxist or not, that I've ever encountered. And they don't like to have people mess up their categories because their categories are their brand, right? But I think it is high time we accept that what goes on in the visual arts and among the best artists, and I use that term with all caution, is precisely to break up lockstep thinking. And people who are professionally dedicated should not become the guardians of those lockstep thoughts.
Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure talking about Guston. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Philip Guston, A Life Spent Painting by Robert Storr, is out now, published by Lawrence King and priced £60 or $85. And it was Book of the Month in the Art Newspaper's Book Club. You can find a review by Kenneth Baker, along with an exclusive extract at theartnewspaper.com. Look for the Book Club landing page. And the exhibition Philip Guston Now begins at Tate Modern in February 2021. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The artist Jacoby Satterwhite, who has a show opening in New York next week, has chosen Edouard Manet's unforgettable Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe. You can see an image of the work at theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link and look for this episode. So, Jacoby, you've chosen Manet's iconic Luncheon on the Grass, which hangs in Paris's Musée d'Orsay. And this is, this is a classic. It's the bread and butter of an introduction to modernism for many Art History 101 courses. When was the first time you encountered this work, whether that be in a book or in a media, like on TV or something? And is that moment separate or different from the first time you encountered it in person? Oh, well, so I've never encountered it in person. It's been force-fed to me throughout my entire life, studying in art since I was, you know, 13. It's always been something I've revisited conceptually because it's kind of like you said it's sort of a banal staple art object that introduces people to the concept of modernism and the pursuit of truth through depicting the middle class of the bourgeoisie or that um you know it, it was something about depicting the common folk on a large scale and not depicting a secular entity and the reason why I thought it would be great to talk about it today was because that painting and Courbet's Burial of Ornan, which was another controversial painting for the same reason, and it was also considered a painting that ushered in modernism, it's because, you know, in 2020, I don't think in human history, in our collective human history, have we ever encountered such a drastic paradigm shift collectively, the destabilization of certainty a shift in like our priorities. I feel like we're, I definitely feel like my outlook has completely been turned inside out, even how, even my intention. And so for my solo exhibition coming up next week, I decided to use the concept of luncheon in the grass as a, as a motif that is recurring throughout the show. Like I digitized all these pastoral concert landscapes with um, figures mutating in folly or something like that. I, I, I personally feel like it was appropriate to reintroduce that painting to my new work as a concept for me to use as something to, you know, leap from because in the painting it was controversial because Manet chose to depict a female nude who was not a divine angel or forest nymph or, you know, it was kind of like something about the banality of it all that was really, really shocking to people. And so I personally was interested in how do I invert that concept? If that painting ushered in modernism, what are we ushering in now? Because we're definitely, we're definitely not even in modernism or postmodernism anymore. I feel like in our current time frame, we're entering a new kind of observation of truth. A lot of like myths on capitalism have been destabilized. A lot like the, 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 the curtain has been, been pulled back and we're kind of just trying to readjust and reassimilate 
to this new way of living. Everything you've just said brings up something that when you when you said that this work was what you wanted to talk about, um, I actually got really excited because the most often trod story, as you've already kind of touched on, about this particular work from Manet is from an art histor- art historical standpoint, is that you know the artist was having a bit of fun with the viewer and and the market and the weight of history in general just by introducing these. You know, these really uncategorizable nude figures in a very quotidian scene and in a slightly realistic way and all while, all while poking a little bit of fun at social mores and, and, the, and the legitimacy of sight and vision and, and what we know to be true. Um, and so I think, you know, as you've kind of said in, in that way, it really does speak to our fake news kind of era now. Yeah, because confusion has been weaponized. Like if modernism was about truth, we're in this era of like chaos, confusion, and division. And um, that has been weaponized by the elite in a way to kind of keep them autonomous. But we're living in a time where like everything we thought we were pursuing or we're pursuing something else, like this confusion spectrum. I understand. So I'm curious to hear more about what you took away from the painting itself? Were there specific parts or details in the painting that you kind of iterated on for the work in your upcoming show? And can you describe some of that? After COVID-19 came to the United States and all of the things that happened with our civil unrest and the protesting and like just basically every kind of cataclysmic thing that's happened, especially regarding this weird race war that's happening now and this weird reconstruction consideration of Black reparations. I kind of felt, as a Black person, I personally felt alienated this year with everything going on. And all I wanted, I could, the only thing I could focus on is, you know, within the studio making things in digital animation is how can I make a utopia, a digital site, a 3D animation, a virtual reality installation that kind of brings back the divine to the Black figure. And so in the animation, I casted Beth Ann Hardison, who is an activist and model, former supermodel, and Dev Hines. And they're kind of like the host of this site where I have my CGI animated figures kind of acting like, you know, robust superheroes in a way. Kind of sort of like any kind of obstacle coming their way in these in this moving image, in this virtual reality installation, they're autonomous of. They're immune to all the biological threats that are flying at them in this piece. And I kind of just wanted to basically invert the concept of a pastoral concert or a luncheon in the grass or an early modernist painting depicting the modern person as an ordinary individual by depicting a community of Black individuals as absolutely not ordinary and absolutely above the beyond and divine. Since it seems like we are inverting the concept of modernism post-COVID. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this work with us and uh, best of luck with your new work as well. All right. Thank you very much. Jacoby Satterwhite's exhibition, We're in Hell When We Hurt Each Other, is at Mitchell, Innes and Nash in New York from the 24th of September to the 31st of October. 
And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And please subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks to Louisa and Grayson, to Rob and to Margaret and to Colby. And thank you for listening. See you next week. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.